The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. London's Imperial War Museum has recently opened two brand new galleries on the Second World War and the Holocaust, drawing together a fascinating collection from across the world and telling the personal stories of a hundred people involved. We sent historian Keith Lowe to the museum for a sneak preview ahead of the gallery's opening. And there he spoke to the curators Vicky Hawkins, Kate Clements and James Borgin about the complexities involved in creating these spaces. Perhaps we can just begin by just introducing yourselves for the listeners. Um, Who are you? And briefly, what bits of the new galleries are you each responsible for? Great. Hi. Yes. So I'm Vicky and I work as a curator on the Second World War galleries. And the areas that I'm responsible for are partly British home front, strategic bombing over Europe, war in Asia and the Pacific, and uh, a lot of content that we have on the British Empire. Hi there, I'm Kate Clements. I'm a curator for the Second World War Galleries and I've been responsible for the content on the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, prisoners of war in Europe, the uh, life under Axis occupation, the Big Three and the Allies at war, the war in Eastern Europe and the war in Western Europe, as well as um, the post-war, the aftermath and legacy of the war. I'm James. I'm head of content for the Holocaust Galleries at IWM. So I work with the uh, content team here to determine the historical narrative that we're telling in the new galleries and also the way that we do that. So I work with the designers here and the various other people, other third parties that contribute to the galleries to determine our overall approach. Right, That was a very uh, um, university challenge, wasn't it? Um, Okay, so this is a brand new permanent exhibition at the War Museum. You've shown me around. Um, It certainly feels very fresh and new. Can I ask you, shall we start with Kate, say, what was wrong with the old exhibition? Why why did the museum feel the need to change it? Well, I think it's the case um, with many national museums that 
periodically you need to refresh your displays. There might be reasons of sort of wear and tear, very physical ones, but also for reasons of reflecting um, current historiography, for ensuring that your content is up to date, um, for making sure you're telling the most relevant story that you can through your objects. And I think that's something we found with these galleries. Um, It's part of a a whole transforming project that we've had here at IWM London, where we have, we started with the first wall galleries and our atrium space, and we really changed those entirely to how they used to be and this is the next step in that so the second world war galleries that we've got now they tell a really um, a much broader story than we had done before and that's what needed to be done okay do you do you think there's also um something about the audience has the audience changed um in, in recent years yeah that's true to say. Um, I think you do need to reflect um, your visitors, the type of visitors that you're getting, and that's what that's what we've reflected on as well. Vicky, how, how do you think audiences have changed in re- in recent times? Well, in the past, um, IDBM has sort of relied upon and been lucky to host a lot of visitors who uh, remember the Second World War as a conflict, and we sort of affectionately um, refer to them as as, as granddad or grandparent uh, tour guides, and they come to the museum with their families, introducing them to objects that they remember or that are familiar to them. Unfortunately, obviously, uh, the number of people who are um, who have a living memory of the conflict has has um, significantly reduced, and so uh, our new galleries are a way of introducing visitors to content where they might not have that direct link to the past. And we use a a range of techniques to um, bridge that gap, especially people stories. So within the galleries, there are over 100 different individual snapshots of people's lives from across the globe to help our visitors to um, put themselves in the the shoes of, of those who were actually there. Right. And, and and James, would you say the same thing about the, I, I noticed, for, for example, there are lots of people's stories in the Holocaust galleries as well. Do you follow the same idea? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, uh, you know, the first thing to say is that the current exhibition at IWM that opened in 2000 has done a really remarkable job in terms of, you know, bringing the narrative of the Holocaust to, to audiences for the last 20 years. But I think Holocaust historiography has changed really, really substantially in the last 20 years. And it's just simply the case that the uh, the knowledge and information and research that we have available to us now is is completely different from from the knowledge and research and information that was available 20 years ago. And I think the other issue that we have is that a lot of our visitors have a sense of this thing called the Holocaust, uh, which has been constructed through uh, fictional accounts and, and you know films and books, etc. That's not necessarily particularly historically accurate. And uh, and so we have a huge amount of people who are really interested in this subject, but are getting their knowledge from uh, potentially slightly problematic places in respect of kind of uh, factual accuracy. So so we so we have a, a role here as well in terms of uh, asking people to think about this huge and challenging complex subject very differently. And as you say, bringing personal experiences of the people that it affected into that narrative is, is a really integral part of that. Okay, well, let, let's, um, let's begin at the beginning of the exhibition, which brings me to the idea of what is the beginning? I mean, traditionally, we've always in Europe at least, uh, viewed the beginning of the war as September 1939. Kate, where do you begin with your narrative? Yeah, we start in the 1930s, really, um, and we paint a scene of what the world was like in the 1930s. And we've been very careful in that first space to not make it just about Europe, to right from the start, um, Japan and China are in there and the war that starts between them in the 1930s, of course. And um, we're showing that visually. We're showing um, we've got a large AV that dominates that space. And in that, you see footage from and photographs from various places around the globe. So straight from the start, visitors 
audience will understand this is not just about Europe's war. We're telling the global story from the outset. And can I ask you the same thing, James? Is uh, I mean, the Holocaust has not just one beginning, but lots of beginnings. So, so where did you choose to begin the journey through the rooms? Well, we, we it was really important to us that, that our introduction to, to the people involved in this uh, series of events wasn't wasn't entirely through the, the lens of kind of perpetration. The, the, the first time that we met the people that the Nazis would end up targeting as, as Jewish people, as Jewish individuals, we, we would meet them as autonomously defined individuals living their own Lives. So, so our, our entry point to the narrative is through the through the core narrative is is to meet Jewish people living pluralistic and diverse lives in different ways across Europe. Now, the Second World War and the Holocaust, of course, happened simultaneously. They go hand in hand, and of course, the Second World War facilitated the Holocaust in in, in many ways. You could have taken these two things and shown them simultaneously in one big exhibition. But you've obviously chosen specifically to have them as separate things. How did that decision get made? Has it always been like that? And and are there any links between the two different galleries? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really good question. I think I think the reality is actually that whilst there are kind of uh, areas of, of commonality, the narratives of the Holocaust and the narratives of the Second War are are discrete, um, albeit interlinked. And I think for us. Uh, there are moments where we see this relationship as being integral and there are moments where we see this relationship as being a little separate, actually. We we find the two things separating out. So the Holocaust, in some respects, has been described elsewhere, isn't isn't a, a means to an end, but an end in itself. It's not something which is just pursued because of the nature of the Second World War. It's because the Nazis find themselves so determined to annihilate Europe's Jews that they'll do so at all costs, even if it's not actually in the interest of their war effort. I always think a really good example of that, actually, is the fact that they kill their own countrymen and women, you, you know, that which is completely outside of the tenets of, of an ordinary war. And in that respect, we really do see the separation between the war and the, and, the, and the Holocaust. So I think in that respect, it was always pretty clear to us that we needed to separate these things out. But nevertheless, uh, there is a problem in, in terms of contemporary understanding, uh, in understanding the relationship between the two things as well. The separation um, has led to some people describing the Holocaust becoming almost a free-floating event, uncoupled from history, and, and reintegrating it into history was really important too. So I think from the museum's point of view, it always made a lot of sense to retain separate galleries, but it was also important to look to reintegrate these histories more meaningfully. Yeah, there's there's one wonderful room um, where, which is that sort of double height room where you have uh, uh, the Holocaust gallery on, on the sort of balcony above, and beneath you have the the Second World War galleries. And so there's a sort of interaction there in in the physical space. Uh, how did you uh, come about designing this uh, link? Well, from the very beginning, we wanted to think about how we could create a link between the two spaces. And certainly we went through various iterations about how that could be achieved. Um, a lot of it was down to the actual physical structure of um, the museum and what we'd be able to do. Um, but I think what we've been able to achieve is is quite powerful and impactful. So between the two galleries in this double height space, there is a V1 flying bomb suspended between the galleries. Um, and we have used that one object and interpreted it from two very different points of view. So from the Second World War galleries below, we have a showcase that's looking at the effects of the V1 on civilians and those who experienced the damage and actually were bombed. And we also look at the uh, attempts to 
um, knock the V1s off course or to have barrage balloons or um, the various different um, ways to combat the weapon. However, from the galleries above, the object is interpreted from the point of view of the fact that slave labourers were used to build the tunnels that the V1 was constructed in. Um, and therefore, that one object has a, has a double meaning. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about how material culture can tell us so many stories about the past. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. From our point of view, it's an incredibly potent and powerful way of elucidating one of the critical parts of this history, which is that a load of it is, is lost, it's gone. You know, the, I think one of the, the really overlooked parts of the Holocaust is that there are whole corners of European culture, European Jewish culture, which have been completely eradicated and there's nobody to speak for them. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, I, I, I've been to lots of World War II museums around the world, um, and they all tell a, a slightly different uh, narrative of of the war. Um, for example, the Great Patriotic War Museum in Moscow is very Russian-centric. If you go to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, again, it's a, it's a very American story. But this is the Imperial War Museum, and the, the clue's sort of in the title, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an international uh, institution and an international war. How did you balance all the different kinds of perspectives from different parts of the, the globe? Well, we, um, it's interesting that you mentioned some of those um, institutions because we did do quite a bit of research at the beginning and we went to visit some of them to find out how other countries talk about this conflict and how we could think about different perspectives that could be included within uh, our exhibition and our galleries. Um, it was very, very important for us from the very beginning to think about how the narrative could put the British experience of war back into a, a wider global context. And IWM already had an amazing collection of objects 
text from across the globe, which we were able to draw through and think about what we could put onto display to, to show the variety of experiences across the globe. And then also we had a, a great opportunity to work with partners, other museums, individuals across the world to fill in some of those gaps that we might have had to be able to, to tell as many stories as possible, really. I, I, I gather, James, that you've also had lots of contact with uh, other Holocaust museums all around the world. Yeah, um, it, uh, the Holocaust, you know, museology, as you'd call it, is 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 it's been so active in the last kind of twenty or thirty years. But it that sort of serves two purposes. It serves lots of purposes, but kind of two key purposes. The, the first one is that it allows us to discuss challenges of representation and, and and ways of approaching the subjects and that kind of thing. But it also means that we can have very practical conversations about loaning objects because, of course, the amount of objects that exist in the world related to Holocaust history are limited and they are more limited now than they were 20 years ago. And so that means that we are you know, reliant on on the goodwill of other institutions to a certain extent in, a, in order to be able to sort of display the kind of things that we would we would want to. So we're very grateful for that open dialogue. And of course, as an organisation, we do the same thing too. You know, we, we loan to international institutions and they loan to us. But it's been a real privilege to be able to do that. And, and we've been very fortunate to benefit from that as well. And, uh, you know, we, we're talking about dealing with about 100 different institutions, sometimes loaning, you know, photographs or, or even graphic files of photographs, you know, digital files. Uh, but sometimes, you know, really incredible objects. And that's something as an organisation we take incredibly seriously as you would hope and expect you know these things are are, are accompanied by experts within the organization all the time and it's something we've been doing a lot recently actually as, a, as an organization obviously we have obligations in that respect and we take them very seriously but it's a real privilege for us to be able to do that and we're very grateful for it I also did notice that although you've obviously had lots of contact with other institutions, your exhibition on the Holocaust is, is very different to any that I've seen uh, usually, these exhibitions are in very dark, confined spaces to give a sort of feeling of claustrophobia, whereas your exhibition is actually quite light. There's a, there's a lot of light in, in the rooms. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you came to that sort of decision? Yeah, we, we when we started the process, we visited an awful lot of institutions uh, to, to look at the ways that the different places had approached the subject. And um, and then we started to think about what we wanted to do. And we weren't kind of working to actively push in the other direction. We we started from the position of thinking, what do we want our visitors to understand from this experience? And one of the things that we wanted them to understand is that these things happened in our world. They didn't happen in a, in a distant unrelated past you know some people have described as planet Auschwitz so so remote and removed it's a different uh, realm to, to the one that we exist in uh, we wanted them to understand that there was nothing inevitable about these events that they happened because people chose to propel them forward and continue to do so uh, and we wanted them to feel empowered to be able to ask questions as well and with all of those kind of um, principles in place it seemed really clear to us that actually keeping the space in the dark wasn't wasn't the right approach uh, and so we just started to think about how we wanted to approach the subjects and the and the things the techniques that we wanted to use in, in order to achieve that and as you say it has meant that actually it has become very different to other institutions but we obviously visiting other institutions has, has also enabled us and allowed us to sort of observe best practice elsewhere and and a lot of the um images that we've used or, or ways of thinking about things as an in a more kind of critical way of, of all being you know, profoundly informed by those experiences too. So I think, you know, those experiences have really informed our approach. But as you say, I think a lot of people coming to the new galleries will be quite surprised 
by how they look and feel. Well, well, ple- pleasantly surprised. I hope I, so. I, I, yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah, but I, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think I, th- I really hope it will be a prompt to 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 for people to really engage with this subject in a, in a different way and potentially, I would like to think a more meaningful way. Actually, now, you mentioned the the word museology. I'll ask you this, Kate. A museum is not like a book. It's not you don't sort of start in one place and just plod your way through to the end. There's you've got text, you've got exhibits, you've got uh, audiovisual, you've got sounds, there's all sorts of things going on. And you also have a lot of very different people coming here, from children to, to grandparents, um, people from all sorts of countries, people who just want to rush through, and then geeks like me who want to you know, linger over every object. How do you cater to everybody all at once? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's no easy task, to be honest, but it is something we give a lot of thought to. And throughout the process of these galleries, we've ensured that we have involved different people. We've involved different communities, different groups. We've had um, what we called people's forums, where we invited all sorts of different people, um, different ages, different backgrounds, different members of the community to basically feed into what we were doing, um, you know, give their thoughts on what we were planning and what would they like to see in these galleries? What, um, you know, what would they like to read? What are they interested in? We also had sort of access and inclusion forums, um, groups who came in to give their feedback to make sure the spaces were as inclusive as possible. How long does a process like this take? Oh, so we've been working on these for five years (laughs) but yeah they do feedback and it was invaluable and we had sort of text workshops as well where we literally got the we got people in to read what we'd written is it going to work for them is it pitched at the right um, right way or the right age range Um, and all of their feedback was invaluable and we were able to embed that in our designs in our approach in our interpretation and our selection of content as well you've you've had the luxury of having a, a vast uh, sort of archive of exhibits to choose from. Um, how did you choose the specific... I mean, you've got to cut out a lot of things. You can't display everything. How do you choose the good exhibit? I mean, what in fact, what makes a good exhibit in... in the Second World War galleries? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, because, yes, we do have a huge collection of objects to choose from. And so many times it's it's really difficult to pick just a couple um, that end up actually going into the showcase. Um, for me personally, an object that... Um, really speaks to me is something that I look for. An object that maybe has a personal association, um, maybe it's something that I can connect with or I can find out more about. Um, You know, did somebody use it? Did they collect it? Why Uh, did they make it? Was it important to them? And um, why did they give it to the museum? So I think finding out about the stories behind the object, um, you know, and, and their relation to war and, and whether or not they, the objects themselves were witnesses to war is a, is a great way for helping to um, make that selection. Uh, there's so many incredible personal stories in our galleries and we've been really fortunate to speak to a lot of the families who have donated them to the museum. And I think, again, Kate will probably agree with me that having those personal connections to those donors um, also makes the objects even more special to us and we want to, to pass that information on to our visitors so that they feel those same kind of connections that we do. Yeah, it really does. And I think actually to add to that, what does help us in a way when we're selecting content is that we've kept everything contemporaneous. So everything in the galleries is from the time, it's from the war. So that does help you to narrow things down a little bit. But yeah, and and it's also about um, looking at the overarching narrative and getting those key messages and what objects support that. What are visitors going to get as well? And you have to think through how it's going to look on display ultimately as well. I mean, they tell stories, but they also have to work in the space and and speak to each other often as well 
within showcases. So you, you want a mixture of different um, materials and different items on display to keep visitors interested, engaged in what you're doing. We also have to work closely with our conservation team here because um, we have to make sure that the objects are going to be safe and cared for for the 20 years that they're going to be on display. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to check the condition of them, to check that we can support them on the mounts properly, that there isn't going to be any further sort of degradation of the object in any way. And, and that sort of also adds into the selection process. Do you have a particular favourite object on display? Um, I think one of my favourites is actually a micrometer. So it's a tool to measure very um, small measurements. And it was uh, owned by a lady called Louis White. And she was a woman who was mobilised um, to uh, work in a factory uh, in Leeds, in the Blackburn Aircraft Factory. And she was really nervous about it. And she wrote in her diary how she was so proud that she got promoted to inspector, that when she got her first set of tools, her colleague engraved her name on the micrometer for her. And I'd read all of this information in her diaries that are in the collection. And I thought, I wonder what had happened to that micrometer. I'd love to see it. Um, and I found her son. I got in touch with him. And he said, oh, I, I still have it. Would you like it? Um, and a couple of weeks later, it arrived on my desk. And it was an amazing object. And to see the hands engraving was just so lovely. Um, and then I did a little bit further research and realized that the um, the factory, the Blackburn Aircraft Factory, where Louis was working, actually made parts for the fairy swordfish aircraft, which was one that my granddad would have flown in the war. So there's a little part of me that thinks, well, maybe there's a little connection. Maybe Louis was working on an aircraft that my granddad ended up flying. <laughs> Can I ask the same question to you, Kate? It's very tough to choose because, yeah, there are so many fantastic objects. But I think ones that has meant a lot to me personally um, are some objects I've acquired specifically for the galleries from India. So um, in the post-war section, we um, look a little bit about the sort of end of empire and we look at the um, partition of India and we try and tell that story. Now, we didn't have anything in the collections about that at all. Um, and it was really important to me that we actually get some sort of physical presence for this really important part of the post-war story. And I was able to get in touch with um, someone who, whose father's um, Victoria Cross is on display in the museum. And um, I asked her about whether her family had any, any links, any objects from that time, from the partition. And she said yes. And she had these amazing objects. It's really beautiful. Um, it's, a, it's a scarf and it's a pallor, it was called. And it's bright pink with beautiful gold thread, real gold thread in it. And it was um, worn, held by her parents during their marriage ceremony in April 19. 1947. A couple of months later, of course, the partition happened and they had to move from where they were in what was then Pakistan. They had to move across to India and they took very little things with them. It was a very um, dangerous journey. There was a lot of violence and bloodshed going on um, and they took this with them and they also took um, a flat iron pan, a tower, and very few possessions they had with them and set up and had their new life um, in India and a new, new place there. And these objects look beautiful on display and it's great to include that within our narrative. It's it's going to be new for visitors, I think, certainly to IWM London. Well, that's, that's something that I'm particularly interested in. As a post-war historian, <laughs> yes. it's, it's nice to see that, uh, you know, that the, the yeah. narrative doesn't end on the 8th of May no, it definitely but it continues doesn't. a little bit. And when we installed it the other day, actually, um, the, the lady, her name's Raminda Singh, um, her granddaughters were here to witness that and it was really moving for them and they were really, really proud that their, you know, their grand, grandmother was in the galleries and this story was there being told. Um, James, talking of exhibits, you have an object right at the very end of the Holocaust galleries. It's a tie pin. 
Can you explain a little bit? Yeah, it, it was a type in that belonged to a gentleman called uh, Marek Kellerman. Uh, and he came to the UK in 1938 on business uh, from Bratislava and deposited this type in and a bracelet belonging to his wife, actually, uh, at a Barclays Bank in Victoria, and then returned uh, to Bratislava again and never came back. And the object sat there for years and years and years. And Barclays uh, tried to trace Marek Hellerman and, and weren't able to. And so eventually, through a scheme that became operational at the time, it was given to the museum. And we've made attempts to trace him as well. And we haven't been able to. So, so from all of the tracing services that exist uh, across the world today and are still very active, there's there's no trace of, of this man that we can find. And so from our point of view, it's an incredibly potent and powerful way of elucidating one of the critical parts of this history, which is that a load of it is, is lost, it's gone. You know, the, I think one of the, the really overlooked parts of the Holocaust is that there are whole corners of European culture, European Jewish culture, which have been completely eradicated and there's nobody to speak for them. And I think the survivors that, that, that came through it offer, a, you know, a really, really important perspective on certain parts of this history. But there are huge parts of it for which there's nobody to speak. There are no survivors and, and they're gone. They're gone. And, and I think for Marek Kellerman's typing speaks to that total loss. And it's really important for us that people understand that. That was Keith Lowe talking to Vicky Hawkins, Kate Clements and James Borgen. Imperial War Museum London's World War II and Holocaust galleries are open to visitors now. Keith has also written a feature about his trip to the galleries for the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Rebecca Donner will be recounting the story of Mildred Harnack, an American who led the largest anti-Nazi resistance group in Second World War Berlin. Mm-hmm.